Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, August 11th, 2022. The Climate Report broadcasts and podcasts on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Today's Climate Report starts with a follow-up on some of our previous food-based climate emissions reporting, and then we touch on the Pandora's box of climate change versus disease, before closing with the latest details regarding a new climate bill to be introduced perhaps tomorrow in the U.S. House of Representatives and soon signed by President Biden. Please note, all Climate Report shows are archived at KVMR's podcast page for re-listening and sharing. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. I'm always grateful to have conversations and be contacted by listeners of the Climate Report. And our first subject is going to be revisiting something that came about as a conversation I had recently with someone who asked about our food reporting in regards to climate emissions and food selection for our diets. Because while there is a lot of focus on transportation, electricity, and oil use in regards to emissions, Studies tend to show that 37% of global emissions are actually tied to how we eat and how we raise our food. The good news with that is research tends to say that tends to be the fastest and biggest impact that individuals can make with climate action. And so a lot of research has been getting pushed out and we've been diligently bringing that to the airwaves in order to help people guide knowing what makes the most difference when it comes to food choices. Now, naturally, it's been repeated quite often that a plant-based diet is going to make a huge impact over a meat-based diet. And the other um, constant good news that has been coming out is that science is encouraging people to not feel like it has to be all or nothing. That In many cases, uh, it just tends to be minimizing meat, maximizing plants, and substituting different meat sources for others. And that's what this listener asked me about because We had done some reporting a few months back regarding some studies that ranked the different types of animal meats in regards to climate emissions. This was the study that also looked at organic versus non-organic meat and perhaps surprisingly showed that when it comes to climate emissions specifically, organic meat is not necessarily better because organically raised farm animals tend to produce less meat and it takes them a lot longer to reach that mature meat level in their life cycle. So they end up staying alive a lot longer and they produce less, so more animals need to be grown. And the net impact is actually harder on the climate, according to this study. Well, what this listener, though, was asking about was they recalled that this study showed that when it comes to the different types of meat between beef and lamb, um, chicken, poultry, pork, that pork was the lowest on the climate emissions totem pole. And what he recalled 10 years ago in a study on water use was that pork was actually quite high on that impact. So we discussed the fact that there are different studies, and it's important to note when studies are looking at different impacts, because we all know, of course, that studies show organic has its own benefits to the animals, to the consumers, to the environment, in other ways. And some studies look at just water use or just pesticides or just energy. For the KVMR listeners of the Climate Report, we try and focus on the climate emissions subject. So 
I diligently went back, revisited, looked at um, the research that was out there, um, research from Princeton, um, information published in Science and Nature Food, um, journalism from the New York Times, The Guardian, and really looked closely at the climate emission impacts and what does it say. And I wanted to revisit some of the things that we do know to verify and confirm them, but I also wanted to mention some very interesting new things that I learned that I feel would be important for people wanting to stay abreast of their personal climate impact in regards to their diet. For starters, as we do know, and as we continue to say, the ruminants tend to be the hardest on the planet. Those are the types of mammals that um, burp and fart methane. That's the cattle and the, uh, the sheep. So beef and lamb, and number three hardest on the climate, and looking at all the latest research and aggregating it for you, is shrimp. Beef, lamb, and shrimp are the top three meat sources that are recommended to minimize, if at all possible, if you are trying to maximize your impact on the climate. Beef, lamb, and shrimp were at the top. What was at the bottom was then pork, chicken, and fish. So fish was lowest, then came chicken, and then came pork. So there were a lot of recommendations in the literature for climate action to include not necessarily feeling as though people need to switch to all vegetarian, but perhaps choosing a vegetarian day a week, and then when meat is consumed, swapping out uh, beef, lamb, and shrimp for pork, chicken, and fish. It was also noted that um, even though there certainly are climate impacts to transportation of food, and there is a big push to eat local, and that has its own benefits to the local economy, that the actual transportation impact of emissions in our food systems is extremely small. When it comes to all of these different types of foods, whether it's plants or animals, transportation really accounts for about 5% of the overall emissions. So it was quite uh, astounding to read that the science is necessarily uh, not necessarily recommending a fixation on local foods, that it isn't as big of a deal where your food is from when it comes to climate emissions. But what is it exactly? And uh, the best analysis um, that I could find in Princeton showed that substituting one day's worth of calories from beef and dairy switching down to chicken and fish, just doing that one, one day a week would be equal to buying all of your food from locals. So if someone obsessively bought everything they could locally, the impact is so small you can instead just focus on one day a week eating lower impact meats and have the same impact. So another way to look at it is it says that by analyzing consumer data, researchers estimate that the average American household's food emissions have food transportation accounting for only 5% of the total. That means if we were able to take the case where every household sources all of their food locally, the maximum reduction in their climate footprint would only be 5%. So the uh, going red meat and dairy-free one day a week, not meat-free, just red meat-free one day a week, would achieve the same as having a diet with zero food miles. So it was quite interesting to, to read some of this information um, and discover they even show the math on an example of someone that, uh, let's say, lived in the UK. And they said that they got their beef from their neighbor if they just walked next door to their neighbor to get their beef. 
versus buying beef from Central America 9,000 kilometers away. The difference is negligible, less than one half of 1% impact on climate emissions. So for those that were curious about how the, the studies and the research and the science continues to let us know what has the biggest impact, beef, lamb, and shrimp are at the top, pork, chicken, and fish are at the bottom when it comes to animal meat sources, plant-based sources, of course, outshine all of them, and most notably, again, for the American diet, transportation accounts for only 5% of our food emissions. So what we eat is vastly more important than where it comes from. That's a follow-up that was in, uh, encouraged by a listener. Next, we'd like to touch on some important info regarding ongoing viruses, pandemics, and threats to human systems around the world as climate change continues to grow. It has been concerning in both the realms of climate change and medical crises that misinformation and disinformation has erupted alongside of these dual issues. While the climate crisis is enhancing the chances that there will be more pandemics, more viruses, and it's important for listeners to know that there are indeed places and times where crises encourage bad actors to make poor decisions based on profits and power, but indeed it is not a hoax that we should expect to see and hear more of these types of pandemics. A brand new study has underscored the severity of the link between the climate crisis and pathogens. Climate crisis impacts have worsened a vast range of human diseases. This is a report in The Guardian says more than half of human diseases caused by pathogens have been aggravated by hazards associated with climate change. Diseases such as Zika, malaria, dengue, chikungunya, and even COVID-19 have been aggravated by climate impacts such as heat waves, wildfires, extreme rainfall, floods, according to this new paper. In all, they discovered there are more than 1,000 different pathways for all of our various climate impacts to worsen the spread of disease. 1,000 different pathways for climate impacts to worsen the spread of disease. They called this a cavalcade of threats too numerous for comprehensive societal adaptations, the researchers wrote. They say that global heating and changed rainfall patterns are expanding the range of disease vectors, such as mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, and bats, resulting in the spread of malaria, Lyme disease, West Nile virus, and other conditions. Storms and flooding have displaced people, bringing them closer to pathogens that cause outbreaks. While climate impacts have weakened humans' ability to cope with certain pathogens, drought, for example, can lead to poor sanitation, resulting in dysentery, typhoid fever, and other diseases. Said Camilo Mora, a geographer at the University of Hawaii who led the research, we are opening a Pandora's box of disease. Because of climate change, we have all these triggers waiting all over the world, over 1,000 of them. There are diseases out there just waiting to be unleashed. It's like we are poking a stick at a lion. At some point, the lion will come and bite us in the ass. Well, the researchers combed through more than 70,000 scientific papers that analyzed the links between different climatic hazards and infectious disease. Some of these papers look at evidence stretching back 700 years. Well, they identified 375 different infectious diseases mentioned in these papers. And then they modeled what the climate future and the impacts would do to these 375 different infectious diseases. What they found was interesting. 
they found that 16% of these diseases would actually have less of an impact in the future because they won't like what the climate will be like in the future. 16% will actually go down. 26% of these different infectious diseases wouldn't have any change whatsoever, but the overwhelming majority of these 375 different infectious diseases that affect humans, 58% of them are expected to actually be aggravated and made worse by climate impacts. What was also interesting is that the uh, World Health Organization has now warned that the climate crisis threatens to undo the last 50 years of progress in development, global health, and poverty reduction. The lead researcher closed by saying, if there are pathogens that cause us harm, climate change is trying to get to every single one of them. For me, it's shocking. We don't take this more seriously. Well, undoubtedly, the biggest climate news on the entire planet right now is the pending Inflation Reduction Act that is expected to be brought up to a vote in the House of Representatives tomorrow, Friday, August 12th, and then quickly signed by President Biden. There was an awful lot of glowing reports and media talking about the wonderful features and the expectations of the benefits of the bill. And there have been also some news media reports about some of the darker features and the giveaways and concessions to the fossil fuel industry. There's some confusion about how the bill might impact electric vehicles and the tax credit. And in the midst of all of this noise and ruckus, of course, there is the churning clickbait industry that is designed to titillate people as they see a headline and click in. And there are also industry actors and spokespeople that are making this outrage and scorn and steering this whole mix of media cacophony out there. What I'd like to do for the listeners is peel back the hood on what is underneath this Climate Act and talk about some of the more interesting and uh, probably noteworthy items that are either points of confusion or a little talked about. What I did was uh, went through actually quite a few, quite a few different headlines and news pieces and analyses that seem to indicate something's wrong and amiss with the the devil in the details. These are some of the headlines uh, and some of the news sources that I used. And then I'm going to read to you uh, my best aggregation of analyzing all of the reporting and information that's out there about the devil in the dirty details of, of climate, clean climate legislation. These are some of the headlines. Congress is about to pass a historic climate bill. So why are oil companies pleased? Another headline says, landmark U.S. climate bill will do more harm than good, groups say. Further headlines say, Democrats celebrate as climate bill moves to House and critics weigh in. Of course, a common headline says things like climate bill could slash U.S. emissions by 40% after historic Senate vote. Other stories say, who exactly benefits from renewable energy subsidies? The answer will surprise you. Shouting distance, that's how close the act gets us to our climate goals. Then uh, there are also a lot of interesting EV headlines. One says how these top-selling electric cars could be affected by the new tax credit. Another one that is more clickbait-oriented said no electric vehicles on the market today qualify for the new EV tax credit. Uh, That is a fact check false. 
So we looked at uh, news sources, PV Magazine, Autoblog, USA Today, Princeton, Fast Company, Washington Post, Vox, The Verge, The Guardian. And what I'm going to read to you are selected uh, items that I discovered that are worth knowing about this new uh, bill. So first of all, the, it's a remnant of the Build Back Better bill which would have done a lot more for the climate and gotten us a lot closer to our end goal. Science says that by the end of the decade, we, everyone on the planet, the United States as a country and us as individuals, we all need to cut our emissions in half by the end of this decade. This new bill with the best analyses that are out there, there are three different independent nonpartisan groups that have thoroughly analyzed it, the Rhodium Group, Energy Innovation, and Princeton University. And they all provide a range. So one thing that's important to remember is you read the general mass media reporting on this new climate bill, they tend to put a fixed number on it, like 40%. In reality, all of the best studies recognize that the future is uncertain and that the outcomes kind of depend on the price of oil and the future economy. And there is a range of outcomes, a high and, and a low. So as best we can find from all of the most reputable new analyses of this latest final version of the bill, it could reduce our emissions from 31% to 44%. That's a big range because we need to get to 50%. Either way, and that's why the news media is saying roughly 40%. Either way, what this bill does is it doesn't get us all the way there. It doesn't abide by the Paris agreements. It doesn't meet our obligations to the international or domestic community. And it doesn't meet the needs of the moment. That's what all of the research is plainly uh, making clear. The Build Back Better bill would have gotten us much closer, but it was weakened by fossil fuel-friendly Democrats in West Virginia and Arizona who made sure there were concessions given away to the fossil fuel industry that, generally speaking, uh, are unheard of. Keeping in mind, of course, that the fossil fuel industry is the most profitable industry in the history of the United States and is raking in record profits as we speak. They still got concessions and, and subsidies um, as part of this new bill. It should also be noted that research and uh, shows, and you can find this easily in, in any news media outlet where you search, that Joe Manchin, the Democrat, is the single largest recipient of fossil fuel contributions from donors and lobbyists in the Senate. So oil companies are indeed pleased. ExxonMobil and Shell have talked about um, how they are satisfied with uh, what's coming out of this because it is going to green light more drilling and oil drilling and gas drilling in offshore from Alaska to the Gulf of Mexico. It guarantees that every single year for the next 10 years, 60 million acres of uh, oil leases, gas leases will be given out. And then if they aren't given out, none of the wind development that is proposed for offshore that is part of this new bill is allowed to take place. Essentially, much of the green energy um, part of the legislation has been handcuffed and tied to also increasing oil alongside of it. If oil leases aren't given out, then offshore wind leases will not be allowed to be given out either. Manchin also made sure that uh, even though there has been a controversial pipeline looking to be pushed through West Virginia, 
this new legislation mandates that it would go through. It greenlights what's called the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which would carry fracked natural gas 300 miles through West Virginia. Other parts of this new climate bill, um, they relax, ease, and speed up fossil fuel extraction permitting rules, making it easier for fossil fuel developers and drillers to override environmental objections. So largely what is the, the sentiment across much of the part nonpartisan analysis and media reporting is while this bill is indeed a net gain for the climate, it is like stepping on the gas and the brake at the same time because it will increase fossil fuels along with increasing green energy. Now, what was also fascinating is that while the rest of the bill is making the United States tamp down its appetite, and all of the analyses say that the United States as a country will indeed require less natural gas and less oil, one of the most fascinating analyses that I came across was done at Princeton University. And what it appears to be happening is that while the United States, through this legislation, is going to decrease its appetite for fossil fuels at the same time. Our American fossil fuel industry got concessions that allow it to ramp up producing more of the natural gas and oil that we don't need, creating a glut export situation. What was most interesting in the analysis from Princeton was that it was estimated that as a result of the reduction in Americans' appetite for natural gas and the increased expectation of more natural gas being produced anyway, the United States could likely be positioned to replace exactly in full the amount of natural gas Europe used to get from Russia. It appears as though the fossil fuel industry is allowing Americans to actually tamp down their appetite for their products in exchange for allowing them to ramp up the production to send it all overseas and supply the rest of the world, according to some of these analyses. The vast majority of funds in this new legislation will eventually benefit corporations, either directly or indirectly, as much of the benefit to citizens requires them to buy more goods and stimulate the economy, handing their cash over to those same corporations. Again, the analysis and looking across all of these different news sources, not just looking at the glowing, happy, celebratory um, announcements, but looking at the ones that really made it sound like there's something nefarious here. It is not true that it is worse than nothing. It is not true that this will do more harm than good, according to the research and the third party analysis that is out there. So it is important to make sure that as we go through this tumultuous time, there are going to be screaming and hollering and clickbait from the left, the right, and everywhere in between. And it can be difficult to find out what really is the truth of the matter in these bills. According, again, to the three different independent third-party nonpartisan analyses, it shows that it will be a net gain better than nothing. However, it won't get us to where we need to be. It comes across as the equivalent of instead of driving off a cliff at 65 miles an hour, now the United States and the world is planning to drive off a cliff at 30 miles an hour. So most of the, the silver lining in the analyses says that 
this is going to help make everything easier and allow individuals, the private sector, state and local governments to fill that gap that the federal government isn't willing to make, that this will make everyone's efforts easier, even as it falls short of the scientific goals and as it expands the actual use of fossil fuels. So again, what's commonly referred to in a lot of the news media is clean energy and climate progress is basically being handcuffed to corporate subsidies for fossil fuels. Now, expert science and advocacy groups all tend to agree that this must be the first piece of U.S. climate policy. It can't be the last piece. Now, what was also interesting is that they have made it easier and they're encouraging through this legislation more personal action in buying habits. So for a lot of the news media, they've made it very clear that while political action has been taken, none of the effects of this bill will come to fruition if people don't change what they do and how they do it. So what are some of the new subsidies and incentives and tax credits for individuals? Well, there are now going to be encouragements to do quite a few things. It's going to be made uh, more um, financially possible through these incentives to get EVs, to purchase solar, to purchase batteries, to install heat pumps, which are a more efficient way of heating and cooling homes using electricity, new appliances, electrifying basically our homes and transportation, new electric cooktops, energy efficiency measures, and recognizing that homes may require upgrades to their electrical systems and their utility service panel, there are incentives to help cover the cost of any electrical upgrades in order to electrify a home. Well, one of the more controversial aspects right now that's coming out in the clickbait realm is what does this tax credit do for EVs? Initially, the reports were this is wonderful for EVs. The old tax credit, the existing one until this legislation is signed into law, says that you can get a $7,500 federal tax credit if you purchase an electric vehicle. However, once a manufacturer has sold 200,000 EVs, they and their models no longer qualify. This is the case for Tesla, for example, who is the first to reach that. I believe GM is the second one. That They've sold enough EVs that their vehicles don't qualify for the tax credit. This legislation removes that 200,000 vehicle limit. So initially reports were great, the gloves are off, now Teslas are gonna requalify for the tax credit, so will GM, this is great news. Well then quickly my inbox was flooded with all sorts of different other takes on what this does for EVs, including as I mentioned the clickbait headlines that say no electric vehicles on the market today, qualify for the new tax credit. I found that that was uh, not necessarily true. And if you just clicked in and read the article, you'd quickly discover that's not true. What is true is that this new EV tax credit, while it doesn't have a cap of 200,000 vehicles, it does say that the battery materials today must be 40% sourced from North American or US uh, trading partners not China. And so what is acknowledged is that out of the several dozen EVs and plug-in hybrids today, 
that 30% of them would qualify. That's almost two dozen EVs would still qualify. It also includes the five most popular EVs in America, all of whom would still qualify. What this does say, though, is at the end of this decade, after 2029, the rules say that EV batteries to qualify for this tax credit must be 100% North American sourced. And it is true that if that were in effect today, no EVs would qualify. But it's to take effect at the end of the decade. And there are a lot of analyses that say by the end of the decade, EVs and the price of them will be so competitive, the tax credit won't really be as important. So there was a great analysis that looked at the top five selling EVs and plug-in hybrid EVs in America and how they would fare. And here's how they would fare. The Tesla Model 3 and Model Y, both U.S. made, um, the top selling EVs in America right now, they would still qualify for the tax credit following passage. That's a boost for the brand because, again, Tesla's currently phased out of the credit. Um, however, only the lowest Model 3 would qualify because there are limits on how expensive an EV can be to qualify for the tax credit. But the two most popular EVs would qualify. The Ford Mustang Mach-E would qualify, the Jeep Wrangler EV, the Hyundai and Kia EVs, and the Chevrolet Bolt EVs would all qualify. So just make sure that you're keeping your ear open and that you're staying balanced and recognizing that it's difficult to find out the truth in the matter. And that's what the climate report here is doing for you. Well, that's all for today's climate report broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR FM and at KVMR.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, including heaps of good news and tips, there's a Climate Report social media page. And as always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website podcast page for sharing or re-listening. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. 